0: Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John speaks with Mahsa Ali Mardani about protests and censorship in Iran. Then I continue the conversation with John and Will about the intersection of protests and social media around the region.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Maxa Ali Mardani is a scholar at the University of Oxford and a senior researcher on freedom of expression online with Article 19, a human rights organization based in London. Maxa, welcome to Babel.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So we've been seeing protests in Iran for more than a month. What is the role that social media is playing, shaping the protests, amplifying the protests? Where does social media fit into the protests?
2: Social media has an incredibly powerful role. In fact, the internet has an incredibly powerful role in Iran. And that's part and parcel of the fact that media is very severely controlled, accessed for international journalists to be on the ground to report when any crises or protests occurs is severely limited. And so looking for independent sources for what's actually going on outside of the control and censorship of the state, you really have to turn to what's on the internet and what's on social media. What we're seeing unfold as we speak are over four weeks of protests that have been ongoing in Iran. And the documentation and the news we've been getting from these protests has been solely dependent on digital evidence that we are getting through footage posted on social media or through sources and citizens actually being able to get footage via the Internet to outside sources to be able to report and share on it.
0: So that's for us. But in terms of organization, famously, the Iranian Revolution 1979 was Partly fomented by cassette tapes that were passed from hand to hand, we have seen more uses of the internet over time. How does the internet affect the way the protesters themselves communicate, network, amplify, mobilize? What tools are they using inside the country, and how have those tools changed over the last ten years? Two thousand nine, we saw Iranian protests, or been other times of protests with some engagement of social media how is it changing
2: we have to really zoom out to over a decade ago and go back to 2009 with the green movement in iran and then during the Arab Spring within the rest of the Middle East region. And so you have to really look at what role social media played. And there is a term that came out of the frameworks created for technology and social media, which was this kind of misguided framing of technology as the tools that would foment democracy and freedom and change. And much scholarship has been written and much has been thought of in terms of how that was really misplaced. And you cannot really place that much agency within technology technology didn't even have such a central role during 2009 with the green movement protests in iran but it did really get framed within western discourses as this is the twitter revolution what i do see right now in terms of the role of social media it's not necessarily the tool that is going to bring change it's not necessarily the tool that is mobilizing people The role I see that social media has is very multifaceted. It has the role of documentation for accountability. The digital evidence that it's able to produce for us is very substantial. Being able to say that technology is playing a role in getting hundreds of people out on the streets, being able to get over 100 different cities to break out into protests over the past four weeks in Iran, that's a bit of a harder statement to place because we can't necessarily say that Twitter is the reason why 200 people made it out onto Keshavar's boulevard after Masa Amini's death. We can certainly say that it is helping. It is spreading awareness and solidarity, not just internationally, but inside Iran. The ability to witness your fellow citizens and your fellow women taking the stand has a very significant role in mobilizing, maybe not in terms of directly telling you exactly where to go on the street, but maybe incentivizing you to actually walk out and discover where the protests are happening in your neighborhood. So how I would really define it is technologies ability to create this opportunity to witness and kind of incentivize solidarity to incentivize mobilization rather than actually determining the exact shape and form of protests or movements or eventual democracy movements.
0: One of the things that social media can do is it can give advantages to governments with pervasive surveillance apparatuses to understand how networks work, how people are communicating, to understand who ringleaders are. How sophisticated is the Iranian government, both in controlling the internet, but also in monitoring the internet in order to crack down on dissent?
2: The Islamic Republic of Iran has been doing since the introduction of the internet has been developing very well thought out and sophisticated means to try to control this new space where they really could not dominate the discourse or the free flow of information the way that they previously had through traditional media and newspapers and broadcasting and radio. I mean, certainly there were times where satellite television has played a significant role. And there has been a lot of attempts to jam satellite connections in Iran, but nothing quite has been as powerful as the internet in terms of the free flow of information that it has produced. And so there have been different stages of creations of systems. And so after 2009, really began to strengthen the institutions and the laws and the infrastructures to control the internet through all the different layers and systems. And
0: this was the so-called Green Revolution in 2009.
2: Yes. So following the 2009 Green Revolution, we saw Iran actually ratify the computer crimes law within the parliament, which had attempted to criminalize a whole host of activities. It had even criminalized the use of encryption, which is a law that really defines a lot of the technology and services that are developed inside of Iran. And what is the most interesting is the way that internet infrastructure has really become centralized towards the state. So we have the telecommunication infrastructure company of Iran and basically all international gateways. And those are the connection points, the actual infrastructure, the submarine cables that connect the international internet into Iran. All of this is heavily controlled by the Central Regulatory Authority, which is under the Telecommunications Infrastructure Company of Iran. They give permission and licenses to different internet service providers, ISPs, to maintain these connections. And part of those deals is to actually embed technologies of censorship and surveillance. So the users of ISPs, would be monitored and have their internet heavily controlled going through these technologies. And these mechanisms and these tools have become severely sophisticated over the years in terms of both the monitoring and the censorship that has been occurring. During November 2019, there was quite a blunt reaction to the power of the international internet, where we actually saw a week-long near-total internet shutdown, where eventually only national internet services were available during the November 2019 protests and consequent internet shutdowns. And that had severe repercussions on the economy. Billions of dollars were lost because of those shutdowns. And after these crises there's a lot of resources and a lot of thinking gone into what went wrong, and what could be improved. So 2009 was a major point where a lot of new laws and infrastructure was developed. And after November 2019, I think was another very key point where new Laws and thinking have been developed. And one of the things that came out of November 2019 was this new bill called the User Protection Bill. It's supposed to be a new law to govern the internet in Iran. It's quite draconian in the way that it really wants to eliminate all connection to any kind of foreign service platform that refuses to cooperate with the Iranian authorities. It seeks to criminalize and completely disconnect VPNs from being used in Iran.
0: These are virtual private networks that give privacy to internet users.
2: Right. So virtual private networks, you have censorship of key internet services and platforms in Iran up until the recent protests, Instagram and WhatsApp were the only foreign platforms that hadn't yet to be blocked But the use of virtual private networks or VPNs or circumvention tools have basically become near ubiquitous within Iran. The majority of Iranians have a whole host of different VPNs. So if one stops working, you have another one, or you go and download another one. And so this bill has really tried to eliminate the use of VPNs and to then criminalize them. They have been developing the technologies to really be able to disconnect and eliminate the use of VPNs on the particular network. We've been noticing VPNs becoming destabilized over the past couple of years with the introduction of this bill. And we've been noticing a quiet implementation of the basic policies of this bill, regardless of the fact that it hasn't had political will to even be ratified within a majority conservative parliament. And so they've been developing very sophisticated and automated ways that we have been seeing deployed very intensely during the Masa Amini protests to remove the use of VPNs. So during very intense periods of the protests, we've seen no VPNs are working. So this has been a very sophisticated form of censorship, which is to attack the virtual private networks, which has had massive repercussions without even needing to shut down the Internet or rely entirely on the national information network.
0: But as I said, there are certain advantages to letting people talk, because then you can understand the networks by which people organize, you can understand who the ringleaders are. Is there any evidence that there are some elements of the Iranian government that actually want to sit back and let some of this go on so they can target people by their internet use?
2: Certainly, there has been a lot of that. We've been seeing different Twitter accounts and Telegram accounts that are associated directly or indirectly to the state try to open source the identification of protesters, And there certainly is monitoring of all the major protest documentation pages. And I know that a lot of them are being targeted, either if they're inside or outside of Iran. There's an enormous amount of pressure on them. And certainly the open source intelligence potentials of social media is being used in full force by the authorities. They also have certain disinformation campaigns and certain campaigns to tort narratives or create counter narratives during the protests. And we have been seeing evidence of that even for the Massa Amini hashtag. We've been seeing accounts or kind of troll farms associated with the regime trying to promote the wrong hashtags to divert the narrative. So there have been a lot of these kind of counter efforts through different technology platforms. Where we have seen the most harm, however, have been technologies that the state can control. So WhatsApp, there's no evidence that the Iranian state has been able to really crack the encryption or any of the protocols of WhatsApp. There hasn't been much evidence for them being able to do that. So in terms of private messaging, if you are using foreign platforms, there is a layer of security and protection. However, what we have been seeing in terms of users being identified and located, it's really through the technologies that are controlled by the state. So your internet service provider, your mobile data company, we've been seeing people targeted if they've been attending protests and their cell phone has been on, their telecommunications provider has been able to kind of geolocate them and they've received text messages to say that the authorities know they had attended the protests in X area in Iran. We've also been seeing even more benign technologies. For example, there's been multiple reports of protesters and activists or human rights defenders who've become active recently. Who have kind of gone into hiding and have been trying to avoid authorities from either being arrested or interrogated or harassed? They have actually been geolocated to the exact positions they are based on a food delivery company's data on where they are. They're kind of the Iranian Uber snaps data on their users. Things like this have also been actively cooperating with the state. Again, there is no data protection in Iran. There's no levels of encryption for any kind of these local technologies. And we have been seeing how they have been actively integrated within security apparatuses.
0: I'm surprised when I've seen you describe the role that Instagram is playing in these protests. We don't think of Instagram as a platform of political protest. Can you describe what's going on on the Iranian Instagram?
2: The role that Instagram has in Iran really is part and parcel of the history of censorship in Iran. And so going all the way back to 2015, we really saw the rise of the use of Telegram in Iran. And Telegram had a lot of features and abilities that were very key for information and communication in Iran. It it offered messaging services, it even had encrypted messaging option. But then it also started developing telegram channels and telegram channels became very central in terms of sharing information and news. So you have all the major news sources that have blocked websites, had telegram channels, BBC Persian has like millions of followers on the telegram channel and can drop actual Content and broadcast for people easily to download and consume on their Telegram channel. And so it became very central in terms of all kinds of news, communication, even e commerce. And by the time that we got to the protests that broke out during December of 2017, kind of went on to January 2018, Telegram really became the main kind of tool that was associated with those protests. The government decided to block Telegram temporarily during those protests. They eventually permanently blocked Telegram by May 2018. Telegram was cut in 2018, and then Instagram really took its place as the main social media channel, and Instagram has become quite central, all the way from e-commerce to even platforms for regime officials to activist pages and protest documentation pages it has a very wide range of purposes within iran and there's wide followings for regime officials wide followings for even regime friendly celebrities who might even be verified on instagram a stat from a research institute in Iran came out that said that anywhere there was somewhere between 700 million to a billion dollars of revenue being created off of Instagram and various marketplaces inside of Iran so it had a significant contribution to the Iranian economy to Iranian employment and so once again as there were with other platforms There were debates about should we censor Instagram? What should be the internet policy in terms of what Instagram does? And so right now, there's a temporary ban on Instagram as the protests are taking place. But even a few days ago, the Supreme Council of Cyberspace convened, and they decided that it was too soon to take a vote on whether or not the ban on Instagram would become permanent. And they again referred to the benefits it had to the economy and the opportunities are provided. And they decided, until we figure out if there is a legitimate local national alternative to Instagram, they would not deliberate on whether or not the ban on Instagram would be permanent. And so it has this kind of complicated relationship. While it is playing a very integral role in terms of communicating and documenting what's going on in Iran, There is a hesitancy by the authorities to crack down on it.
0: And you've also written about the ways in which the moderation efforts of some of these Western social media platforms end up hurting protesters who are trying to move against a repressive government. Could you describe how moderation needs moderating?
2: The topic of content moderation across platforms is a very important and sometimes controversial debate. And Iran is not the only context where there's a lot of concerns over how platforms are governed. There's many different contexts, especially outside of Western language context, we have seen lots of struggles, especially with platforms like Meta, formerly known as Facebook, in terms of how they do content moderation. Do they have enough resources? Do they have enough qualified moderators? Do they have enough qualified technology to be able to understand cultural and linguistic nuances when it comes to conflicts? And so this was a big deal in Myanmar, obviously. When a genocide was taking place and Facebook was having a very harmful role fomenting that kind of hate. And generally, there has been a tendency for there not to be very good moderation in different languages, or depending on how the policies kind of fit within US foreign policy. When it has come to protest, there is one policy that Meta has: the policy of incitement to violence. So Meadow's policy of incitement to violence means that you cannot call for the death of anyone, given the way that protests are characterized and often they result in certain chants. And of course, one of the most notable chants in Iran is a variation of death to dictator or death to Khamenei, who is the current dictator. This started more than a year ago. So back in 2021, there were protests that broke out in Khuzestan, and there were a number of takedowns related to removing content that said death to Khomeini." and there was a temporary exception that Facebook created at the time. And they stopped creating that exception after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, basically. There was a leak that Facebook had created an exception where Ukrainians could call for the death to Russian soldiers or call for the death of any number of Russian leaders in the context of their role in the Russian invasion. This was leaked and there was a massive controversy and there was a lot of outrage because these exceptions were not given in other contexts where there were conflicts or invasions that occurred. One of the biggest examples was situation of Palestine and Israel, Palestinians never had that kind of exception. When Israel started bombing Gaza, content moderation policies never had those sorts of exceptions for Palestinian users. And so there was that question of why are the exceptions that Meta gives so selective? and really based on the interests of U.S. foreign policy, rather than kind of equitable distribution across all kind of contexts and regions. And so following this, we naturally had more protests in Iran, and Meta decided that they would no longer be giving the death to Khamenei exception in the Iranian context, given the backlash that was created following the Ukraine exception. But, I mean, this policy is being actively reviewed. And Meta's oversight board is at the moment currently deliberating over the fact that perhaps there should be an exception on death to Khamenei. And there's many different arguments for why this exception should be made. It's a parcel of protests in Iran, and so there should not be any kind of censorship of expressions related to protests, especially given the many different layers and hurdles there are to posting information or sharing information and accessing the internet in Iran. So
0: as a final question, as we think about the role technology is playing in these protests, what should companies be doing differently? And what should Western governments be doing differently? You could argue, partly to support, but also partly not to harm. Iranians who are protesting for more representative government.
2: One of the things that I mentioned is ensuring that the policies in line with the context and the needs of the information and communication environment in such a precarious Internet environment as Iran. That is an important factor, Another factor really is the resources and time that these companies are putting into things like rapid response, what kind of support they are able to provide to users inside the country. That's been a big gap that I've also been seeing throughout these protests. And there really should be more robust mechanisms, especially across platforms, to work with each other to ensure that information is being shared in terms of protection of vulnerable populations and particular users. I mean, there's also a role in terms of allowing certain technologies to be accessed in Iran. Of course, we had the U.S. Treasury's GLD-2. It was updated to allow for a host of services that were previously blocked from being accessed in Iran because of sanctions. They were kind of given an exception by the U.S. government. And that has included things like cloud hosting services, like Google Cloud Platforms, Google App Engine, or AWS from Amazon. And these are important services in terms of giving tools and resources to technologists and developers to rely and use safe and secure internet services outside of the services that are being provided and controlled by the state. And I mean, this last point, it's not as crucial, I guess, for immediate help to what's happening during massive internet disruptions and issues with access to the internet. But longer term in terms of building a more safe and secure internet in Iran and avoiding complementing the Iranian regime's efforts to really nationalize and localize all internet services in use. The cooperation of companies like Google in terms of actually making their services available to Iranians is very important as well.
0: Maxa Ali Mardani, thank you very much for joining us on Babel.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: John and Will, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to see you guys again.
0: Thank you, Lovna. Great to see you.
1: So we had a really interesting episode this time around, as we always do. And personally it kind of brought back a lot of memories about the use of social media during, you know, air protests and Because the
0: Arab- you were in Libya in twenty eleven.
1: Yeah, I was. I was in Libya. I was there for the power cuts and like bringing all social media platforms offline. Even the phones were tapped. It was almost near impossible to share anything, especially within the capital itself. But people found very interesting workarounds. And it's it's interesting to see what's happening right now in Iran and how like the new generation is using social media, also learning from the last decade. So I thought we could start maybe by kind of looking back at the Arab Spring, how the state's first response is always one of censorship and taking a lot of these platforms down, especially Facebook and Twitter. And there's this argument that technology doesn't have a lot of agency in terms of bringing about regime change and toppling regimes altogether. But that makes me wonder. If that's not what technology or social media is doing in these instances, as these regimes are arguing, what kind of change do you think social media
0: has when it comes to protests? So my take on a lot of the protests of 2011, and I watched most of them from Washington, D.C., and not from Tripoli or Cairo or anywhere else, was that what social media did more than find audiences was it turned... Observers into participants. That there's something about social media where the threshold to become an activist, the threshold to participate, the threshold to upload or share becomes very low, and people began to identify with the movement. I've long thought that the Arab Spring was largely driven by a television narrative that people could all watch the same thing and have somebody frame it and curate it and package it but that there was an interaction between that television single narrative and individuals feeling like they could join a movement at very low low cost in terms of energy or expenditure, sometimes a tremendous cost in terms of risk. The challenge that we saw in the Arab world after 2011 is that in many ways these social media movements were better at taking down governments than replacing governments, at having some alternative to an infrastructure, and movements weren't forced to develop an infrastructure to take power, and that's I think part of the explanation for why more than a decade after the Arab revolutions of 2011, there aren't any democracies that came out of the revolutions, although autocracies were pushed from power. In many cases, they were replaced either by ongoing civil wars or refurbished autocracies.
3: Yeah, I think the idea of social media as a mobilizing force is really interesting. And although by its nature, it was extremely fragmented, social media, I think, did play a role in crystallizing some moments which became symbols later on. And that's where some of the real power of social media has been. So, for example, there were early on in Syria, a lot of activists on social media would dub different, you know, Fridays like Friday of Rage or something like that, and would then use this hashtag to show that these protests that were happening all across Syria were part of a kind of community and to try and show the linkages between them. And even beyond the Middle East, I think, there are some almost viral moments that have come to play a big symbolic role in protest movements or opposition movements. This is a different context, but I'm thinking of Snake Island in Ukraine. This video that went viral on social media of Ukrainian soldiers trying to defend and and refusing to surrender this island to a Russian ship is now on a stamp. In Ukraine, And it has become this sort of national symbol. And, you know, looking at Iran today, clearly the individual of Mahsa Amini is incredibly important in this in this current protest movement. A former guest of ours on Babel, Mark and Jones, has pointed out that the the actual the Persian for Mahsa Amini hashtag on Twitter has been retweeted 280 million times. So in comparison, Black Lives Matter, as a hashtag, has been tweeted about 60 million times over the last decade. So clearly, this is spreading extremely quickly, and, and it, sort of, it can crystallise these symbols and really spread them. But as John said, then it's a completely different matter when you go beyond some kind of threshold. is a lot harder to articulate an alternative and a new form of, of governance.
1: I find myself agreeing with you. Just experience and seeing how it played out. A lot of these societies don't necessarily have the platforms for open political participation. And then when the opportunity presents itself, social media has been that space for them to finally come together and find a sense of community and unity and see that they're not the only ones who who have the same memories of the regime. And it's something that happened in Libya where like social media was such a good, not a tool, but a vehicle for creating a collective cultural and political memory of the political violence that the regime had practiced over decades. It was a place for documentation of everything that happened. And it was also a really good place for invoking past memories of resilience and resistance. So... There were a lot of symbols that were circulating social media in Libya during the early eight couple of weeks of the revolution. And it all had to do with Omar al-Muhtar, who was a revolutionary fighter against the Italian occupation. And people were starting to use a very old independence flag. And all of these things were creating almost a brand behind the movement, and it made people feel like they were a part of something. And to John's point, it made the threshold for participation and, being, and feeling
0: like you're a part of a political community very low. Well. But at the same time, it seems to me that, that the Libya you grew up under, the, the Libya of Muammar Gaddafi, was such a repressive place, and this was such a, a different moment that social media had a role helping people pass into this different moment. Iran has been repressive and has had the same repressive regime for more than 40 years. (laughs) And people have been struggling against and there's been this sort of cat and mouse game with the internet and social media and satellite television and other things. I think that there may be a way in which the social media is chipping away in some ways of the government. But I do think that and as Ahmed said there's a way in which we can't expect social media to change the environment. Social media is an opportunity to document. It's an opportunity to bear witness. It's an opportunity to push through regime propaganda. But to expect that social media is going to create democracy or the democratization of information is going to liberate people against repressive regimes that have been playing this game for decades and have gotten better in the last 10 years of playing this game. I think that's putting too much responsibility, too much reliance on social media, and not enough reliance on the necessity of actual organization, which social media is not very good at
1: I completely agree. I think it does a very good job, at helping people finally challenge state-sponsored narratives so that they will finally have a chance to have a conversation with the discourse. That brings me to my next question. During protest movements and social unrest, what do you think that social media helps people communicate, but also who is the audience here?
3: So... I keep saying social media are fragmented, and I think it is used, or social media platforms are used by different people for hugely different purposes. Some of it certainly has been used to try to mobilize protests, but a big part of it, I think, is trying to document a witness to an external audience. And in 2011, I did some work experience for the BBC in Beirut. And that was at the start of the uprising in Syria. And we were trying to track what was happening. And it was very difficult, but a lot of the reliance was on social media. And I should say the BBC went to a lot of lengths to try and cross-check and verify and, and whatnot. But a huge amount of the information was then directly given to a BBC audience. And so it became a very, I think, tangible way for... Audiences in the West to see what they thought was happening seemingly directly and there were some groups who became very good at articulating what was happening specifically to a Western audience. And I'm thinking in particular about a town in northern Syria, Kafar Nabal, which became famous for these big posters that they had or, or sort of with slogans on, often in English, often responding to news that was happening in the US or maybe in Europe, often very funny. And these were intended to go viral. And so I think some people became really quite aware of the potential that social media had to spread messages to different audiences.
0: At the same time, I mean, I think all of us have lived in the Middle East at a time when the world was paying attention. And there's a way in which social media provides an almost false intimacy that people think, oh, I'm seeing what's really happening. When the the media is seeking to find things that are unusual or memorable or striking not the everyday, and it tends to make audiences feel that they have a front row seat to something which almost by definition isn't where the overwhelming majority is. I was in Egypt during an earthquake in 1992, and everybody watching CNN back home was convinced that Cairo had been reduced to rubble. And I knew three different buildings in Cairo that if I walked a long distance within a two mile perimeter I could find that showed some external damage. No building I knew had collapsed. But there's a way in which I think especially you know during the Arab Uprisings of twenty eleven, there's a way in which people felt, Oh, I'm getting the unfiltered deal by looking at what people tweeting in English we're saying
3: largely to Western audiences, not being representative of the
0: broader discourse whatsoever. So I think there's a way in which you know for the outside world to witness is interesting and important, but oftentimes the outside world is lacking a certain context. And it's granted, it's not a context that a television station is framing for you. But I think there is this sense that that you're getting. It's a real ground truth, and it's a ground truth, but almost by definition. You don't have nearly as much context as you need, but you have the illusion you actually don't need any context because you're getting it straight from the horse's mouth.
1: Yeah, and there are certain dangers to that, I think. So another thing that I'd love to talk about before I let the two of you go is I'm going to talk about what the Iranian regime has done to crack down on protest movements in public dissent. Are other states in the Middle East perhaps adopting a different strategy to dealing with social media when it comes to how people are using it and expressing their discontent? Because some authoritarian regimes, not necessarily even in the Middle East,
0: are more of the approach that let's be a part of social media. I mean, in some cases, you're seeing governments that are are flooding the zone, either with happy talk or they are so confusing and muddying the situation with people who are enemies that either you can't find their posts or they're discredited or they're overwhelmed or something happens. It's a more proactive effort to shape this by understanding how the Understanding how the algorithms work and sort of gaming social media to create an alternative reality, essentially by replicating what Russians do in troll farms and other kinds of ways. And we've seen governments in the Gulf in particular try to get ahead of social media and create a narrative, I think, in many ways as well, and talks a lot of People in the Gulf, and and they don't really want the negativity. And so when governments come through with sort of happy talk and positive things about how great things are going, I see this in Egypt as well. People don't, they feel everybody's criticizing. How about something positive? And the government has a massive campaign to overwhelm social media with happy talk, with accomplishments. And there's a certain element that says, thank God. I mean, there really are good things happening. I think, you know, this is a way in which I think sometimes Washington audiences look at, at happy talk and they say, well, let's figure out the real stuff and let's, you know, be critical and let's really pare it down. But I think there's a way in which partly audiences in the United States outside of Washington and partly Middle Eastern audiences look at these government efforts to take down the negativity of social media and they said, good on you, let's have more of that.
3: Doesn't the UAE have a Ministry of Happiness? They do. Yeah.
0: Well, they have a Minister of State of Happiness, I believe. Ah, uh, okay. I'm not, sure min- I'm not sure what Ministry of Happiness employees would be like. <laughs> it's an interesting thought experiment.
1: I mean, I've not met a happy Arab outside of
0: myself.
3: So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's I'm sad. Why have you, like <laughs> yeah. you you got the one happy Arab. <laughs> Will, do you have any thoughts? I agree. I mean, we've talked about disinformation before, but I do think part of this is about just discrediting everything and making it very, very difficult to believe anything at all. And there are so many different methods of doing this. John and I have spoken to people in the Gulf who have been part of big WhatsApp groups for families where there is fear even among your family of being too critical. And the idea that maybe there's someone there who might Sort of tell on you. And I think in some ways, governments rely on fear like that to discredit social media and to close it as an avenue for true, you know, expression and mobilization. But also just this feeling that maybe nothing is true. And a lot of social media isn't true. And I think it would, a lot of people in DC could do well by being a bit more circumspect about retweeting shocking things that they see. So this is hardly unique to the Middle East. But I do think that there is a tendency to, you know, capitalize on that and and just throw doubt on, on everything. It's very, very hard to tell who some of these accounts are that are tweeting things. I'm sure you know, I certainly know people who have several different social media accounts and different social media accounts for different audiences. And sometimes it is extremely hard to tell who they are. So there are so many questions about where this information is coming from. And often the sensational is what goes viral. What that speaks to
0: is that there's a way in which social media by its nature almost is unrepresentative. And when we consider what's happening through social media, we have to understand that it both represents and misrepresents a reality that we're trying to
3: understand. Definitely.
1: That is a great sentence to end on. Thank you. And we'll speak again.
3: Thank you, Livna. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at Mideast.